17 verses um, of Matthew chapter 1, which if you've read it before, you'll know is a challenge. So I uh, <laughs> appreciate your uh, forgiveness if I get any of the very complicated words and names wrong, but uh, it is a, a long genealogy leading up to uh, the birth of Jesus. So I'll give you a couple of moments to get there and then we will, we will start. Matthew 1, um, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17 says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, and whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, 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 the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, and Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shelatiel, and Shelatiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Elakim, Elakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Elazar, and Elazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary who is the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Let me pray as Greg comes up to, to speak to us. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word. And give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom. Show us Jesus in all his glory this morning. That we may know, love, serve and live for him, for his eternal glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Rachel. And I thought, I mean, well done on the names. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a uh, cruel joke. Yeah, this is the part you have to you have to read. 17 verses of what now? Uh, the um, we are going to be I'm just going to lower this cuz I'm a short man. We um are going to be in Matthew 
for uh, yeah until, up until December. But um, the goal is through the rest of 2022 and some of 2023, um, we're going to go through the whole of the gospel with a few kind of breaks in between for Advent and for other kind of little mini series breaks and things. But the goal is to eventually get through the whole of Matthew, which I'm excited about because the last time we went through the whole of a gospel was when we first started Redeemer in 2017. We went through Mark. And it's been since until now where we've actually gone through a whole of a gospel. So definitely we're due for it. Um, the books that you have, they're chapters one through four. And this is kind of like Matthew's introduction to Jesus for us. So we get to learn of uh, the introduction of, of how Matthew describes him as the Messiah. We'll talk about what that might mean in a moment. Now, maybe, uh, I mean, what Rachel just read, that's the bit that you skip over when you have to read it in the Bible, right? You're like, okay, yeah, we don't need it anymore. So why are we focusing on that? Um, well, it's a bit like, especially these verses here, it's a bit like the origin story. If you're into comics or, or even like films do it now as well, um, there'll be issue number zero or some kind of backstory where if you didn't know the, or, or knowing the origin of that character sheds light on the whole narrative and also the character himself. And that's exactly kind of what's going on in these verses here, especially with all these names that we're like, who are these people? Why do they matter? We will talk about who some of them are. We will talk about why they matter. Um, so, and this is a bit like uh, Jesus's origin story, what we have today. And it's uh, the genealogy of Jesus it tells a story specifically for Matthew. It's the origin story of hope, the origins of hope. And in Matthew, and even in these verses here, we're going to see that there's he's, he, the people he's including, he's kind of going out of his way to include some people as well. There's going to be hope for people who are insiders, hope for people who are outsiders, and hope for people who are just kind of generally broken. All of this is essential information to know the story of God, what we also call the gospel. If you hear a saying like back there, it says we're a gospel-formed family on mission. The gospel is the story of God from Genesis to Revelation. And this is essential information to know that story. It's also essential information to know who, who Jesus is, who he claims to be. Now, I'm not sure where you might place yourself as you come into a church, if you feel like an insider or if you feel like an outsider or if you just kind of would generally identify with being broken. But we all need whoever you are, all of us need, whoever you think you are, whoever who you want others to think that you are, we all need hope that's real, and we all need hope that's enough. We all need hope that's real, and we all need hope that's enough. Because what worth is a hope if it's not real? It's just a pie-in-the-sky kind of thing. What's the point of having a hope that's not actually going to come to fruition? It's empty. Holding out uh, political hopes that will never be realized, for example, is something that we do all the time. Uh, so we need a hope to be real, but we also need a hope to be enough, to be big enough for us. Because what if that hope is real, and then we get it, and it's not enough? Then we find out all the things that we've been spending our time on and putting our energy into is, is not enough for us. It's kind of like that retirement that you might scrape and yearn for, and then you get it. Like, is it enough? Like, what's your hope then if it's not enough? So we all need a hope that's real and enough for us. And over the book of Matthew, the entire book of Matthew, God will be teaching us about this hope. This hope is a person. This person's called Jesus, the Christ, or the Messiah. Those are just words for how we would like to uh, define as king, someone who's in charge of, of stuff, in charge of the world. This person is Jesus. And Jesus is not only the one who brings this kind of real, adorable hope. He doesn't just bring hope. He is hope. He's like hope personified in his very being. And unlike all our other hopes out there, Jesus is actually able to bring about his promises. 
I mean, how many politicians can say that, right? Even well-meaning ones. You might, they might really want to change the things, but we know all their promises are not going to be fulfilled. How many <coughs> well-meaning and well-directed environmentalists can say that? We know like, all their promises are not going to come to fruition. How many perfect retirement plans end up exactly the way that you thought they were going to be, especially now with the market going crazy? Everything else will let us down in some way if we elevate, especially if we elevate smaller hopes to what, ought, what is a, a, an ultimate hope. See, Jesus is more than a political hero. <coughs> He's also more than a retirement plan. Jesus is a fulfillment of all our hopes in all the best ways. And he's not an imposter. He's actually real. He's a real person. He is a real person who has existed and does exist now. And the kind of hope that he brings is better than any of the other hopes that are offered out there. So not only is he actually real, he's also better in the other options that we have out there. So we're going to learn about how Jesus is this Christ, this Messiah, this King, this deliverer of hope throughout Matthew's gospel. And for, day, for today, though, we're going to look at this origin story, the origin of hope. In Jesus' own origin, we find that uh, because he comes from insiders, outsiders, and broken people, his hope is for people who are insiders, who are outsiders, and who are broken. So let's start first with the outsiders. Uh, and if you have any questions as we go through this, you'll see the little thing on the bottom here, the little link. That's an anonymous way to, end, to ask any question that you might have. And at the end of the service or the sermon, hopefully I'll remember to check to see if there are questions. We'll, um, we'll try and um, interact with them. Now, okay, yes, let's just say it. genealogy is a weird thing to interact with, right? Uh, are we really going to preach the whole, like, today on these 17 verses? Yes, we are. Um, it's not going to be the bit that we're going to skip because we believe all of the Bible is, uh, is what we should surrender our lives to. Um, but Matthew is telling a story here. He has three sets of 14 generations. They're very kind of clear cut, each stacking upon each other this real idea of hope. And in fact, our translation of the word genealogy is the same word you would get Genesis from or beginnings from. So this is like within Matthew, if Matthew has a book, this little book that we have in these 17 verses is the book of beginnings, the Genesis of Jesus, the Genesis of hope. Just as Genesis in the beginning of the Bible, the very first book was about the creation by God, this Genesis is God's recreation plan and how he's going to work it out. And the audience that Matthew is writing to in first century AD uh, would immediately see that some people will stick out more than others. There's some people who you definitely would expect to see in this list, and some people you're like, why didn't Matthew choose to say that? If you wanted to tell the story of a strong political hero, you wouldn't choose all the people that Matthew chose. If you're trying to make up a story about a god, you definitely wouldn't choose all the people that Matthew chose. You just wouldn't do it. These people are outsiders. These people don't have a lot of cultural power. And he goes out of his way, specifically people who are non-Israelites and people who are women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, who's uh, Uriah's wife in here. You notice how there are women who are included, but they don't have to be. Like, uh, for example, look at verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah. He could have just said, Perez, the father of Hezron, but he stops there. He said, whose mother was Tamar. He's including Tamar in this genealogy of Jesus, in this origin story of Jesus. Now, definitely three of them, and possibly all. We don't, we're not really sure about um, one of their ethnicities, but definitely three of them were not natural-born Israelites. They're not ethnically insiders. They're outsiders. They were women, and especially at this time, women are definitely outsiders. They were mothers. They were also prostitutes, adulterers, all involved in either sexually embarrassing or potentially sexually embarrassing situations. 
I mean, one seduced her father-in-law and had his kid. Like, that's a bit of an outsider kind of thing to do. And actually, the one, we'll talk about her in a moment, Tamar, the one who uh, did seduce her father-in-law and had her kid, her situation was so bad, she was so poorly treated, she was actually seen as a righteous one, even in that. That's how bad the situation was that she found herself. We'll talk about her in a second. Uh, but for these women, just generally, the patterns of traditional sexual morality didn't fit. But Matthew is making a point by adding them in here. So it's not the traditional so-and-so was a father, was a father, was a father, was a father. He's, he's putting these people in there for a reason. And Matthew knows what he's doing. And telling Jesus' origins, that he came from outsiders, is also telling us who Jesus is for. Like, Jesus is for outsiders. So let's talk about um, Tamar. Uh, just a brief background. When her husband died, uh, Judah, her father-in-law, wasn't caring for her as he should have. So this pushed her into a really desperate situation. In fact, the law required him to act in a certain way for her, and he just didn't kind of follow through with it. So she was in this really desperate situation. She dressed up like a prostitute, concealed her identity, um, had sex with Judah, and got pregnant, and then showed him that this was actually his child. And he recognized, eventually, he recognized that she was in the right for doing that. She was pregnant with twins, one of which was in King David's royal line eventually, and of course in the line of Jesus. So if you've ever thought that maybe what you've done or what you're doing uh, means that you're too far away for God to be connected to you or for you to be a part of God's plan, just one person mentioned here, Tamar, proves that that's not true. Anyone from any situation is never too far away from God. And if you know someone else and you think, oh, that person, no way. I know what they do on the weekends. There's no way that will ever be, like, oh, God will ever interact with them. Jesus' circle is much wider than ours. And when you mess up and you think, oh, how could I have done this? Am I even a Christian? Like, because I did this thing. Does this mean I'm not a Christian anymore? Well, Jesus is for you because Jesus is for outsiders. And we're all really outsiders when you think about it. If we limit our outsiderness, let's make that a word today, outsiderness. If we limit our outsiderness just to sexuality by itself, we're all outsiders. Now, we're going to talk briefly about sex here. This is actually where you're supposed to put it at the end of the sermon because people who are really tired are like, oh, we're talking about sex now? Really? And you, you perk up a bit. Um, but I'm spending all those chips now. Um, this is, uh, so if you have a sexual past that you um, have not, uh, that you feel like, is, especially the way the Bible might describe it, is on that outsidery kind of path, it's not bad enough to keep Jesus away. It's not bad enough to keep Jesus away. Whatever you've done, whether it was when you identified as a Christian or not, it's not enough to keep him away. Now, maybe this is something you haven't shared because you feel like if you do, people are going to view, view you as an outsider. Uh, but here's a secret. We're all outsiders. Every one of us. And really, in Jesus' church, if we are following Jesus, and this is his church, not our church, but his, the thing that, keep us, that will keep us away won't be our sexual past. It will be the thought that our sexual past will keep us away and then we stop when we take two steps away. That is what will keep us away. Does that make sense? It's actually, actually, not actually our sexual past, but the thought that our sexual past will keep us away will keep us away. They might say, oh, well, you don't know the things I've done, and so we don't engage with it. You know, I may not know the things that you've done, and I won't know everything that everyone's done. None of that, whatever it is, I guarantee you, none of that, whatever it is, is enough to keep Jesus away because he is for outsiders. Now, what about our sexual presence? That's our sexual past. What about... Maybe it's something you're involved in now. Maybe you're sleeping with someone you're not married to. You go to pornography sites. You use hookup apps. Let's make this as broad as we ought to. When Jesus talked about our sexuality, he brought it to our thought life. So he, he basically said, 
if you think about having sex with someone, that's, as far as God's concerned, that's the same thing. So that makes all of us outsiders when it comes to sexuality. We all have problems with sexuality. So when we think, uh, uh, so, so let's easily say, wherever you are, all of us have issues. None of us are perfect, though we might pretend to be sometimes. But none of that, regardless of what it is, none of that keeps us away from God or his church because Jesus is for outsiders and Jesus' church is therefore for outsiders as well. Now, even in saying this, though, the church, not God, uh, the church has definitely designated some zones as outsiders. And I don't know if I can think of anyone who might automatically fit that outsider definition that the church has made up, wrongfully made up, than people who come from LGBTQ backgrounds. They might see themselves as outsiders, often because the church has called them that. The church has treated them like that. But let's have Jesus' life inform how we ought to live instead of live the way that we're comfortable or used to. If Jesus is for outsiders, that means somehow Jesus is for lesbian couples. What does that look like? That's a whole separate situation we could talk about. But right here, what we're, what, we, what we're learning is Jesus is for them. That means Jesus is your friend who is transitioning genders. That means Jesus is for anyone who identifies as LGBTQIA+. He is for us, for all of us who are messed up, and all of us are messed up. And he invites everyone to follow him. Now, following him is not an easy thing to do, and it does require all of us to realign our lives, including our sexuality, through the lens that he gives us. But don't for one second think that because of your past or where you are or where you might go in the future sexually, that that is going to keep you from him. And really, our sexuality pales in comparison to Jesus' mission to lavish his love upon his people because the hope that he brings is the real thing and it's enough. Now, does that mean we have to change? Yes, of course. Everybody does. And it's going to look different for everybody regardless of where, regarding where you're coming from. But Jesus is for outsiders. Your sexual past, present, future, whatever it is, is not a reason to keep yourself from God. Sometimes, though, I think, I don't know about you, but I, um, I think we might want to view ourselves as outsiders to Jesus because it relieves us from changing. If we say, oh, that's not for me because I'm, you know, however I'm defining myself that makes me an outsider, that means I, do, I can keep my hand like this and not actually really engage what Jesus is doing or his church. They might think, oh, Christianity is for cisgendered, heterosexual, white males. Or Christianity is for married people with kids. Or Christianity is for nice people. And so we try and step outside the circle so that we can have a bit of a distance. And actually, what we really want to do is just not change. We want to stay the same. So I know I'm repeating myself, and I will continue to do that. Let it be known. Anyone listening to this now or at any time in the future, you are not too far away from God. Nobody is. You are not an outsider to Jesus. You are not too broken for his church. And you have a place here at Redeemer. If we want Jesus' life to inform how we are to live ours, that means also your life must be connecting with outsiders, however you might define them. So how can we be for those who automatically identify themselves as outsiders? And this will require us to go out of our comfort zone, which is what we'll, we'll learn from Jesus throughout Matthew. Because there are people who wrongly think they're too far gone for God. But Jesus comes from those who were too far gone, and he gives real hope to those who are too far gone for us. So more than outsiders, Jesus is also the hope for religious insiders, for good people who are good at being good. Not just people who are good at being bad, but people who are good at being good. Churchy people, we need a hope too, don't we? We like doing the good things and being seen as good. 
good Lord, please give us a bigger hope than ourselves. Thankfully, they can find their hope in something more than religion or in doing good things. They can also find their hope in Jesus. There are people in this list that the original audience would have understood as leaders, as the right kind of people. So you have King David. He's like the epitome of a king. His, uh, by the way, his sexual past, not great at all, and he did some horrible things. Basically created war crimes to cover up his sexual past. If you think you're an outsider, you have not committed a war crime to cover up your sexual past. I guarantee it. So anyway, uh, King David, the epitome of what it means to be a king. His son was the, uh, was uh, in the beginning of his reign, Solomon's reign, was like the complete flourishing of what Israel ought to be. These are insiders. These are the right kind of people. We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is actually kind of amazing to me. God often identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He took the name of people who were following him. That's kind of ridiculous when you think about it. Very much an insidery kind of thing, right? They are very much Israelites. They're not outsiders. Another reason why this is important for Matthew to mention all of this is that it shows that Jesus is indeed within the royal line of King David. There's kingly blood in Jesus' veins. So we have David and his son, Solomon. They were the pinnacle of Israel as a nation. During and after Solomon's reign, there was a slow decline, a decline in the nation's spiritual lives, a decline in the leader's spiritual lives, and their might as a nation in their unity as a nation. In fact, there were one country, Israel, and they broke into two countries, the northern kingdom and Judah, the southern kingdom. Is, uh, eventually, both were taken over by these powerful outside countries, and they were taken away as refugees, away from their home. Uh, verse uh, 12 talks about this exile to Babylon. That's when the Israelites were stolen from their home, taken away to these other nations, to Babylon. Now, eventually, the Israelites were able to come back to their homeland uh, 70 years after being forced out. Some of their leaders on their way back to reestablishing Israel are listed in here as well. A name that I love to say is Zerubbabel. Sounds fun. Zerubbabel. He was a priest. He gets a lot of, especially in the prophets, the uh, post-exile prophets, they talk about Zerubbabel all the time. I feel like that would be a great name for a dog, like Zerubbabel. You can call him Zeru if you don't want to be seen as a weird Christian guy naming your dog a weird Christian name. But um, uh, he was a priest, a, a priest that God talked all these kind of prophecies about. How much more insider can you get? You're in the Bible. You're a priest for the God. That's very much an insider thing. So we have kings, we have priests, we have religious people, we have successful people in certain kind of definitions. We have leaders. Jesus' hope is for all, not just the outsiders, but for those who are insiders. And this is really good news, because if you're good at being good, it's easy to think that your own version of success is your hope. Where an outsider might think, oh, hope is not for me because I'm not good enough. An insider would think, I'm good enough to be my own hope. And that's a bad thing, too. Insiders need Jesus as much as anyone else. And who needs to hear this more than people in the church like us? We need to hear that. We're like, ah, oh, we're here. We won't say this, of course. Hopefully we won't say this. But surely we will think this from time to time. You know, we're part of the church. We kind of have it. And the only reason why we have it is because God's been gracious to us. Not because we're great. If you've been around the church for a bit of time, you might have been caught on the being good at being good kind of part. And not that it's bad to be good, of course. It's good to do good things. But when our hope is in how we live, that's a bad thing. That gets us into a problem. Now, you might say, well, yeah, I'm a good Christian, and I know the Bible at least moderately well uh, to know that my hope is in Jesus. I'm going to sing songs, and my hope is in Jesus. I read the Bible, I know. If you say, where is your hope? You say, in Jesus. I know what he's done for me. It's not what I've done for him. If that's true, then how come you stay away from him a bit when you make a big mistake? 
If that's true, then how come you don't talk about your failures nearly as much as your successes? If your hope is actually in Jesus, you could talk about your failures all day long, and it's fine. How come you are so long in asking for forgiveness? If you trust in Jesus' work above your own, and how come you don't take small risks? Like, whenever we have, for example, this is a perfect example, whenever we have open prayer time here on Sundays, you know, sometimes there's that really awkward long pause where no one's saying anything, and some people are like, maybe with the awkwardness, are like, oh, dear God, please let this end and let somebody pray or somebody sing the next song because five minutes of silence when people ought to be praying, you know, each second gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And now my, um, my tolerance for awkwardness is probably awkwardly high, and so I have no problem with the silent kind of part. But there's something about that. There's a reason why we don't pray out loud. And it's because we're thinking more about our own performance, more about how we're going to be perceived instead of the person that we're praying to. If it was, oh, guys, can you imagine all of us right now can pray out loud and pray to God? You know, in, um, in, in Korea, they all pray at the same time all at once because they're all praying to God. And it, you, it's like you can't stop people from praying in a group. That's very different from us because we're kind of caught up in our own performance because we want to be good at being good or at least be seen at being good at being good. We don't want to be seen as silly. But if we put our hope in Jesus instead of how we live, then we'll be able to do small risks. And you know what? If you say some prayer that is kind of dumb, that's fine. Like, no one's going to remember that, and God will be happy that you prayed. <laughs> I would love to hear more dumb prayers. Can, I, can that be like an application point? Let's pray more dumb prayers? I don't know. Probably not. Let's make a distinction, though, um, being actually good versus being seen as good. Now, these are two different things. Sometimes they overlap, but they are two different things. People who are actually good, living in the way God's called us to, means you will be nice to other people. Uh, it means you will sacrifice for others' good. You will seek out the outsiders. It will mean that we understand God's goodness to us so deeply that we're transformed and live in new ways. It's a good thing, and it's not self-focused. There is a hope in the Lord there. But when we're on the other side, when we're trusting in ourselves, we will always limit ourselves because being good will never be good enough for you or for other people. We need something bigger than ourselves to put our hope in. In the, um, the art world, there are many fake paintings of very expensive art, as you can imagine. Lots of forgeries that have gone. I did a little bit of like research on imposter paintings, got into a bit of like a, um, a Google Wikipedia rabbit hole. Um, people pay a lot for fake paintings. One famous art forger, this guy here, Eric Hebborn, uh, seen here posing as dubious as possible in front of one of his paintings. Uh, he's British. He's made over 30 million pounds creating fake paintings from Dutch masters. There are most likely Eric Hebborn paintings in museums across the world. In fact, there might even be one here in Manchester. We don't really know. No one can tell because his forgeries were so good. But once a painting is found out to be fake, it doesn't cost nearly as much. You know, people wouldn't pay nearly as much for that uh, as the actual original. And I think this is a lot how we treat our hopes. We're built to hope. We have that in us. We have a lot of hopes. And we pay a lot for our hopes. We put a lot of time and energy and effort and emotion and, and all sorts of things into them. If we're paying a lot, we should really make sure two things. First, that they're, that they're real, and then it's enough. So let's not have our hopes be like imposter paintings, paying a lot for something that's basically worthless. The way to tell if it's a, an imposter or the real thing is the origin story. Who made it? Who's, who's the author? Who's the artist? Who's the original? Was the painting created by an imposter or the real thing? And wanting to be seen as good is an imposter painting. We actually maybe get a bit like Eric Hebborn and get really good at forgery, forging our own imposters 
uh, our own imposter paintings. But we pay a lot to be good. The mask of being good is heavy because you can never actually reveal your true self. You have to be seen as being good. No one will actually know you. And we wonder why we're lonely. So instead of trying to keep up this kind of imposter painting, why settle for this when we can have the real thing? If we do this, we'll be more honest with where we don't measure up, more honest with God, more honest with other people, and then we can truly live with a hope that's beyond our performance, beyond our perception. So Jesus is for insiders as much as he is for outsiders. Uh, an outsider might think the hope is beyond them, and insider thinks they have to be their own hope. So Jesus is for outsider and insider. He gives an unmatched offer of hope to both. And for both, he does challenge them. He requires insiders to change as much as he requires outsiders to change. But whatever the insider-outsider status, all of them are in the, uh, in the same boat in one respect. They're all broken. We're all spiritual refugees seeking some kind of hope in this world. And this is also where the original audience found themselves. When the Israelites were coming back from exile, they were coming back to their homeland, and they set it up as refugees, there was always this hope for a new king that would come in and set things right. And some thought this hope was going to be an earthly throne, a king that would deliver on political promises, but the king who came was so much more than that. So whether an outsider or an insider, all of us are broken, and there's a hope for the broken, a hope for spiritual refugees beyond an earthly throne. And this is not just a list of people who came before Jesus, though it is that. It's also a list of all the people who died before Jesus. Abraham died, Isaac died, Jacob died, Judah died, Perez died, Zerah died. They all died. None of them kept on living. These are a list of people who, who weren't good enough. None of them were perfect. A list of some good people who loved well, but in the end, they all died. However good someone may be for the world, or even in your life, their good will always be limited because they're going to die. And what then? M maybe some other ideas live on, and that's a great thing. But they themselves aren't going to help you in their death. And since we're on the topic, what about in your death? How are any of these people listed here, outside of Jesus, how are they going to help us in our own death? How are the insiders or outsiders in your own life going to help you in your own death? So here's the truth. This list here, some of them impressive, is a list of people who are broken. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Jews themselves are kind of refugees in their own land. Rome has come and taken it over, and they're in charge. So the Israelites, they have their own land, but Rome's come and taken it over. Israelites aren't really in charge of their own land anymore. They're, not even, they're refugees in their own home. A lot of their hopes would be pinned on this Messiah, pinned on this king who would lead them to win them back. It was primarily a political hope. That's what Jesus was seen as, or at least a Messiah would be seen as. I don't think this is too much of a jump for us. We have a refugee experience. We're all spiritual exiles. We're all spiritual refugees. None of us really have a complete spiritual home yet in this world, at least not yet. And so the question is, what do we do with that, that exile experience? What do we do? How are we going to alleviate that anxiety? How are we going to alleviate our fear? For our audience, the popular hope was an earthly king. Of course, today we choose the same things. We put our hopes on like political figures or people who have a lot of power to change things for us. I think also, though, the longing for things to be set right is so big, it, it almost seems either, it seems like too impossible to actually really hope for. It just kind of hurts too much 
to hope for something to be set right when we don't think we're really going to experience it. And so we settle for smaller things. And when Jesus is presented here as he is in Matthew, as the Messiah, the Christ, the King, the hope, probably if we're honest with ourselves, we kind of balk a little bit. Yeah, maybe. We want something here with us now. And Jesus says, yeah, that's me. We want something that's bigger than us, where we can leave a legacy, part of being part of something big and grand and exciting. And Jesus says, yeah, that's me. He's real, and he's enough. For all of us, our problem isn't that we desire too much or expect too much of this world. It's that we're satisfied by so little. We've all given up, all of us. Where are the rebels? Where are those who are going to resist the controlling powers of this world, even as refugees, how are we going to live with this kind of otherworldly hope in this world? Now, when I look around Charlton, the friends that we have, the people that we know, and really, when I look at Manchester itself, there is a narrative of, a, of success that can be found here. We can do good and therefore end up good, therefore be good. If we do enough good, we can be good. And, or at least that's what we want other people to think of us as, kind of being good. And it comes in the form of being seen as having it all together. You can't really not have it all together, do we? Well, you can, but you've got to say the right words. You can't really be honest with not having it all together. And there are many paths toward this broken hope of, of success and doing good equals being good. One of the paths is buying a home. Buying a home is great. It's not going to get you the thing you, like a hope. Another one is financial freedom when I retire. One way to level up in this broken hope system is to get a promotion or to get a partner or to have some kids. The broken hope of success, however we, we might define it, and those are all good things, but the ultimate success, that broken path, has this lie at its core. We did good and therefore are good. And that is anti-Christian in all possible ways. Consumerism is a religion that really leans heavily into this. And with consumerism, you don't even have to do good. You can just buy good. If I buy the right things and get the right things, then I'll be good. A house, a holiday. If I just get that, I'm okay. I mean, one of our favorite moans over COVID in the UK was not being able to go on holiday. Now, that didn't really happen in the same way in America. There's a different kind of obsession, obsessing with holidays here that Americans don't have. Because you didn't go on a holiday. You know why that was a problem? Because our worship was disrupted. We worshiped at, at the altar of consumerism. When our worship was disrupted, we couldn't participate in that worship, and we didn't like it. Of course, going on holidays is a good thing. But if, what happens if you don't get it? Or not even kind of like these big, huge, massive things, but the small things as well. The Netflix me time is consumerism's version of spiritual quiet time. As long as I get my Netflix me time, then I can do the things. If I don't get the Netflix me time, then I can't do anything. If I just have this, I'll be good. We all bow down at the altar of consumerism. I think consumerism in Charlton is a demonic disease that attaches itself to everyone here. Whether you have the things or don't have the things, have money, don't have it's not about money. It's about having the world revolve around you. It's a demonic spiritual disease that will never stop asking for more and will never give you what you want. Now, if you know me at all, I am generally not a person who over-spiritualizes things. If anything, I'm probably more skeptical when people do that kind of thing. But I know for myself, I know for everyone in Trollton who I know, that aspect of consumerism is truly something that we have to reckon with, that we have to resist. And so one of the ways that shows up is when you look around at people who seem to have their life all together because they really care about people having things all together. They have the house, the car, the kids, or whatever. And you think, I just don't know how Jesus would change their life for the better. 
That's because your imagination has been formed by consumerism, not by the Bible. Of course their life would change with Jesus. They would go from death to life. You can have a house, but that's not going to help you from death to life. Having Jesus in your life will utterly transform your life in all the best ways. It would be a much harder life in many ways, yes, but it would be a much better life in all possible ways. If you can't imagine having, how having Jesus in other people's lives will be utterly transformative, that should tell you of how you've been formed. Tell you at the altars of where you worship at times and how that's formed your spiritual imagination. And if you can't imagine it, how are you ever going to share about it and how will people ever hear about it? For all of us, every single one of us, wherever you are with Jesus, wherever you are with the Bible, wherever you are with the church, all of us are spiritual refugees. Systems have let us down. Leaders have let us down. Every element of this world is not as good as it says it is. And as we shop around our hope that is in us, we shop around our hope to this place over here, that place over there, we have Jesus in our midst saying to us, come to me. Jesus' hope refreshes spiritually starved souls. Jesus says, I will give you the refreshment for your spiritually starved souls. Calling to the outsiders, calling to the insiders, all of us. Jesus' hope gives us refreshment for our spiritually starved souls. As we go through Matthew, we're going to hear things from Jesus like, I am always with you. We're going to hear things from Jesus like, I will give you the rest that you need for your souls. What career can say, I'm always with you? Well, you might have a job <laughs> that you feel like is always with you, and that's a bad thing. What about something that actually gives you refreshment that's with you always, and you want it to be with you always? That's something else entirely different. Jesus offers real hope. And as we looked at, people will pay a lot for their hopes. We always pay a lot for our hopes. What Jesus has done, though, is he made that payment himself. We can't pay enough for this kind of big hope. So Jesus said, I've got it. He doesn't ask us to pay for this hope. He's paid. He's not some kind of imposter and not some kind of imposter payment either. Being real, he made a real payment with his own death. There's not anything more that Jesus could have done to make it clear to you, to make clear to us that he is for us. He gave his life. He's real. He's enough. And this kind of hope that Jesus gives, that Jesus is, is one that isn't tied to our circumstance, not tied to our standing in this world, our political leanings, our sexuality. It transcends all those things. And as we, as we lean into our hope, it also shapes all those things as well. Jesus' origin story tells us about who he is and who he's for. And at the end of Matthew's story, we're going to learn about Jesus' death. Jesus died to make all the things we talk about today happen and make them all true. The beginning is hope. The end is hope. With his death on the cross comes with his death on the cross, he takes all of our brokenness, all the brokenness we have, he gathers it all up, all our broken hopes, all the kind of these false altars that we kind of worship at, all the things that we care about other than him, and he, they all got buried in the tomb with him. And only Jesus came out. Only he was raised to life. Only he raised himself to life. The rest of the stuff he took with him is still dead in the tomb. It's all done. Still dead to this day. And so as we eat and drink in a moment here, let's relish in the fact we've been saved from false promises and broken hopes, saved to a real hope who is enough for us. And generally what we do at Redeemer is uh, we sing together and we eat and drink uh, together. Now, if you don't trust in Jesus as your hope, please don't.